Well, I want to say good morning again and happy May Day. Was May Day a thing where you grew up? Because it was a thing where I grew up. Like, uh, uh, like my grandma would always have this little basket, you know, full of, I liked May, get, May Day. It was like candy day. Um, but, you know, like all good parents do, I haven't repeated that tradition for my children, right? Maybe my grandchildren someday if that ever happens. But happy May Day to you. It's spring in spite of what the weather is trying to tell us outside here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I was on a, a Zoom call this week with uh, a bunch of other pastors because that's, that's my industry, right? So I do Zoom calls with pastors. And there was someone in Palm Desert, uh, California, another person in like Sacramento area. And I'm like, how warm is it today? It's 90 degrees in Palm Desert. It was like a perfect sunny 75 in Sacramento. And I looked out my window and it was hailing. <laughs> And of course, they thought that was awesome. And I'm like, man, we could only like experience other things through Zoom than just seeing sunshine. Uh, but I want to say thanks to Phil for preaching last week and giving me a week off. That was, that was awesome. And uh, we were talking about it in our staff meeting this week. And one of the things that Phil said, like we all agreed, like it just never thought about it that way. But you're talking about Peter and just the transformation, like the, the process of his own like growth, uh, spiritual growth in Jesus, to, to w- when he started and he meets Jesus and he realizes like, oh, you know, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner, and that like just awareness of his own shortcomings and how that at that point made him want to get distance from Jesus, to where he's on the beach at the end of John after he's denied him three times and he sees Jesus on the beach and he just, you know, rather than rowing in the other d- direction, he like jumps into the water and swims to the beach. And just that, that difference in, um, man, what an image that is and how, how that's, that's true and true for us. But that Jesus, he's welcoming. He... Um, He's also demanding, yes, but he makes you want to do better. He draws you in. There's grace. There's a relationship there that we can see just the, the, the growth in Peter's own life. So thank you, Phil. We appreciate the word you brought us. Phil's going to be back next week on Mother's Day, and so we're excited to see uh, what you have for us then. This weekend, I've been away at a conference, our Pacific Northwest Conference. That's our denomination that that we're a part of, the Evangelical Covenant Church. They have a, uh, an annual meeting, which you know sounds so exciting to go to. They call it a celebration now, just to make us think that it's not a meeting. Um, but it's so encouraging to be a part of, to see how God is working through a broader movement. And so this is something that has a true, when you give to Cascade Covenant Church, like a portion of our budget uh, goes out to support our regional kind of state, there's a, Northern states, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana is our conference, and there's about 80 churches that work together for mission. And so this last year, it was exciting to hear there's, there was, uh, we planted two churches in the Portland area. There was a couple church adoptions that chose to come into our denomination, but there's more than six church plants uh, kind of in the pipeline or in process of meeting in small groups. And so that's kind of cool to see that, you know, to meet the church planters and some of the people involved with that. Uh, exciting to hear about what God was doing. The, one of our uh, 
the churches that came into our conference here just this last year is in Bellevue, and they baptized nine, nine people on, on Easter, so that was quite a celebration. Uh, but then in the, the broader international sense of our denominational movement, the, uh, we have a church, a sister church in, this, in Sudan. It's the Sudan Covenant Church, and it's led by Sudanese. They baptized. Okay, so lots going on in Sudan, uh, unfortunately. But last year in refugee camps, they, they have, you know, humanitarian outreaches. They care for people. They, they baptized 7,600 people over the course of last year. Like, are you kidding me? So, you know, here in the presence of really great misery, uh, the Holy Spirit is alive and well, and, and, and people are turning to Christ. And so that's something to, to keep our brothers and sisters in Sudan in, in our prayers and to just recognize uh, the good work that God is doing there. Well, for many of us, the weeks, uh, the weeks after spring break, they kind of serve as a, a back to reality. Uh, we kind of have to buckle down, I guess, and finish out the spring. And this is really nothing new. I grew up in a rural farming area, and so this time of year is kind of go time even regardless of what the weather is doing outside. You got to get the crops in the ground. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beehive of activity and that intensity really doesn't let off until, I don't know, like July when farmers just watch around and, or sit around and watch stuff grow. Um, but it's really not that simple. It's, it's kind of always busy during the summer, but it's not quite as intense. And even though I live in a suburban area now, you know, no farms that I know of, I mean, little ones, uh, April, May is still super busy, isn't it? Especially if you have kids and, uh, or if you're raising kids in that kind of stage of life, the, the middle school, high school, elementary stages, you've got, you know, spring sports, you have everything's ending in May. So everybody has some sort of, you know, there's choir concerts, there's band concerts, there's, you know, uh, let's have a party because you returned your library book and didn't get fined you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of things. It's this glut of activity in the month of May. Amen? Yes, it is. And so those of us who are, you know, kind of in that active parenting stage of life, uh, I'm just going to speak for you. May is like my least favorite month, okay? Because of this. It's, it's pretty psycho. And each day feels like go, go, go until you fall into bed and then you wonder if you forgot to do something today. And so this week, as I was preparing for the message, I was struck by this quote. And this is from the New York Times. It's an article that was written like, ah, man, I didn't, I didn't leave it here in my notes. I think it's June 20th, 2014, but it might be 2013. So it's a, it's a few years back. And uh, the writer, Tim Kreider, says this, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. I can't help but wonder whether all this histrionic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. Amen, right? <laughs> and maybe that's a super cynical approach. Uh, to life, but man, if you, if you sit back and think about it sometimes, I mean, that, that hits pretty close to home. Uh, um, I'll follow that up with a, a quote by D.L. Moody. He said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, 
but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. D.L. Moody was a, a 19th century church leader, evangelist. I mean, he was like the Billy Graham of, you know, the 1800s. But he wasn't always a pastor. D.L. Moody, who has a, he has a Bible school named after him in Chicago, um, he, he was first a very successful businessman. He, it was, I think it was boots and shoes. He kind of was building his own little empire in Boston and in Chicago. So he wasn't always a pastor, and, uh, but the Civil War, so he's in you know, the mid-1800s, the Civil War and then the Great Chicago Fire were kind of you know, cataclysmic events in his life. And out of that, he kind of gradually moved away from the shoe business, and he started doing things like, uh, well, with the Chicago Fire, was like homeless shelters. Uh, he cared for Civil War veterans and wounded. Uh, he started, he got involved in the Sunday School movement, which at that time was like literal school, because there wasn't universal public education. So they were teaching people how to read. And so he was getting involved in all these educational um, you know, endeavors. And also was preaching about Jesus and God's kingdom and, and the gospel. So D.L. Moody is um, kind of an interesting study when you look at just a, a person who's listening to what God says or, you know, God's whispers and then trying to figure out what to do with it and gradually leaning more and more and more into this calling that God had prepared for him. And so not all of us are going to have the same journey as, as a person like Moody, but all of us do have to figure out how we're going to utilize our time on something that matters. To not just be successful for successful's sake, but to really succeed at things of lasting significance. And so for followers of Jesus, he told them how to figure this out. Jesus said this, he said, seek first the kingdom of God. That's what matters. Seek first the kingdom of God. And how many of us, how many of you, could tell someone what that means? The kingdom of God. See, that's why we're going to do this next series. Okay? We're starting a new series today. We've been talking about Jesus says, you know, he has all these I am statements. Now we're going we're gonna to take a look at the kingdom is, the statements that Jesus makes about the kingdom of God. Uh, because the truth is, a lot of us are a little fuzzy on exactly what he meant. And Jesus talked about the kingdom a bunch. Uh, in fact, I, I mean, I, I don't know how many, like where it grades on the scale of things that Jesus talked about. But it would have been like close. If it wasn't the top, it might have been, you know, two or three most frequently talked about things by Jesus, the kingdom of God. And he used lots of different phrases. Um, you know, he called it the kingdom of heaven, uh, uh, my father's kingdom. He called it the kingdom. He called it the kingdom of God, which in pastor lingo, we just say the KOG because that makes us feel, makes us feel cool. In fact, someone texted me this morning, KOG, you know, it's just a short way. Anyhow, I digress. But Jesus would talk about the kingdom in, in almost confusing ways. Like uh, in the gospel of Mark, uh, right at the beginning, he says, you know, the kingdom of God is near. Uh, if you go into the, the gospel of Matthew, and that's not the only time, I mean, there's lots of references to it in the book of Mark, all the gospels. Matthew, he says at one point, um, 
oh, to seek first the kingdom, but he taught his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, you know, like, God, your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That made it into the Lord's Prayer. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. In Luke, he says that the kingdom of God is in your midst. What gives with that, Jesus? It's like opposite talk here. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to mustard seeds. He compared it to be like yeast, uh, working its way through the dough. The kingdom of God, uh, at one point he said, it's like a priceless pearl or a treasure found in a field. Uh, the, the kingdom's like the next, next catch of fish. It's a rich inheritance. He had all these images to talk about the kingdom of God. And so you start to feel a little bit, you know, like asking Jesus yourself, just come out and tell us exactly what you mean, Jesus, right? What, what is this kingdom? Um, and if you feel that way, you're in good company because according to Acts chapter 1, okay? So the disciples here have seen the resurrected Jesus. And he's spending time in Acts chapter 1, it says, we'll put this on the screen for you, that during the time between his resurrection and uh, the time when Jesus ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, it says, he appeared to them, the disciples, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I mean, this must be important. He wants the disciples to have perfect clarity on this. And yet, when Jesus told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them, they kind of gathered around him, and one of them asked this, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Huh? Israel? Uh, presumably they mean like, is this the time that you're going to ride in on your white horse kick all the Romans out, and start this party all over again. It's, it's happening now. I mean, that's what, that's what they're saying. Jesus doesn't really answer their question. But at several points, I mean, it kind of comes, it's like, really, at, at this point in the game, you're going to ask? You obviously don't understand what Jesus was all about. And then it comes into view. It's like, yeah, you know, the disciples at one point, there was 12 of them, and they were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. I mean, they have this, like, as obviously you would, you know, Jesus is going to set up this earthly kingdom, and we're going to all be a part of it. But it makes you wonder, how closely were they really paying attention to anything that Jesus said? And we're hard on the disciples, because we can see ourselves in them. But most of, most of us, are pretty fuzzy, in fact, Christians in general, are pretty fuzzy on, on what the kingdom of God really is. And it doesn't help us that we keep calling it a kingdom. You know, we live in a world that's you know, full of dictators and democracies. You know, like our only experience with kingdoms is like Disney, you know, <laughs> Magic Kingdom. Like what? Or, you know, we look at the royals in Britain. We don't have a real good concept of a kingdom or what it means to live a king, you know, under a king at all. And uh, one of my favorite college professors, he used to say, because I was taking biblical studies classes, and um, he used to say that the kingdom of God is central to 
understanding Jesus and to understanding our role in Jesus' world. And he would say, like, this is the number one thing. It's the kingdom. When I first heard him say that, I, I, I was like the, the disciples. I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's really, really, really important. So if it's that important, why, am, why, is, why is there so much confusion? Well, for one, Jesus himself really surprises us. Um, you know, Jesus was the Messiah. That means the anointed one, a.k.a. the future king. Uh, when Jesus chose 12 disciples... That was kind of symbolic. It was symbolic because at this point in time of Jesus, there was only really one tribe, Judah. The other 11 had been scattered, but there was this prophetic promise that someday God was going to bring them all back into the kingdom. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, Obviously, other people at Jesus' time noticed that he said that or did that. Uh, Jesus is this very dynamic leader. People want to follow him. I mean, he's clearly called and empowered by God. I mean, when you think about it, like, what's not to like? Let's just make Jesus king. And groups actually tried to do that. Let's make Jesus king by force. And Jesus would then disappear into the mountains somewhere. Because Jesus had a different idea about what it meant to be king and about his kingdom. In fact, Jesus challenges a ton of our assumptions whenever we talk about the kingdom of God. You know, instead of being exalted up onto a throne, Jesus was raised up on a cross. Uh, They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a robe around him, but it was to mock him, not to crown him, you know, leader. Uh, There's tremendous irony in the sign hanging over Jesus during his execution. It said, this is the king of the Jews. So, I mean, if the Romans and the the Jewish authorities knew about this, I mean, they were mocking him again, like, hey, here's your king hanging on the cross. How do you like that? Instead of a kingdom built on brute force or political power, Jesus' kingdom is built on something else. It's It's on grace. It doesn't advance with a strong and powerful army. Jesus' kingdom advances really on compassion and mercy. I mean, these are the things where, where it just goes counter to all of our assumptions and expectations. Jesus teaches that if you live under God's reign or that you are living under God's reign, when you respond to evil by loving your enemies, forgiving them, and seeking peace, Jesus even goes so far to say that you're living under God's reign when you're praying for those who persecute you. And this is usually the point where we all go, what are you talking about, Jesus? You know, loving your enemies, I I guess I don't, I don't, you know, wake up in the morning and look on the wall and, you know, here's my list of enemies, right? Enemies for me is this, it's almost a geopolitical thing. It's this abstract thing, like, who are your, who are your enemies? Well, you know, enemies are people who are kind of out to get you or have it in for you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to encourage you to, like, make a list of enemies.
You want conflict? Okay, let's go to... I mean, Jesus is saying, no, living in under God's reign is a different way of doing life. It's actually a very freeing way of doing life because carrying around all those grudges and all that bitterness is kind of hard work. So how is it possible to love your enemies, forgive them, to seek peace, to live under, in God's kingdom? Well, it's possible when you and I give our allegiance to King Jesus instead of me, myself, and I. It's possible when we learn to embrace uh, our, our citizenship and Jesus' very real kingdom. It's possible when we learn to seek the kingdom of God first in our life because that's what matters. So over the years, I've heard a number of working definitions for the kingdom of God. Um, people will say the kingdom of God is like the reign of God or the empire of God. Um, the kingdom of God, people will talk about, well, when is the kingdom of God going to be present here on earth? And people will say things like, well, it's eminent. That's a you know, fancy theological word. It's been consummated in Jesus. It'll be completed when he returns again. Uh, my favorite, like, well, the kingdom is now and also not yet. And there's all these kind of, like, okay, what, what exactly does that mean? What's the nature of, of God's kingdom? What's it like? Uh, one of my favorite definitions is, well, it's an upside-down kingdom. In fact, we even played on that. The image that we had for our, in our Friday email, we, we kind of played. I don't know if that's in there, Megan. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed that. When I first, you know, that's actually the hillside and that's the sky. It looks like a reflection in the water. But it's this, like, very disoriented, like, not what you'd expect sort of thing. That's what the kingdom of God is. And one definition that I found that I thought was pretty good, and this is by um, an uh, author, Jeremy Treat, and a pastor too. He said, the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's reign through God's people over God's place. Don't you want to be a part of that? Of course you do. Um, we love definitions because we like to have a category, a box to put it in. But they're not very personal. That definition, while technically correct, doesn't inspire your imagination, does it? And that's why Jesus used so many different images and so many different phrases and said so many different confusing things about what the kingdom of God is because he is trying to ignite our imagination, that this could be different, that this could be better, that this could be preferred to anything that's available on earth right now. Once he was teaching a large crowd of people, some disciples, uh, huge range of topics. This is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he talked about who's blessed it's not the most powerful or wealthy in the world. It's actually people who are poor in spirit, who are merciful, who are mournful, pure in heart, humble. He, he taught about anger and revenge and sex and giving to the poor and prayer and judging others, all sorts of stuff. It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And about two-thirds way through this, you know, very long sermon, um, he says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. 
what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, about what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? This is one of those moments where, while I like Jesus, he's not always warm and fuzzy. He can kind of challenge you at times. I mean, imagine if you're the disciples. They've left their jobs. They've left their families. They've left a comfortable existence at home to follow Jesus. They had every reason to be worried about food, clothes, and their future. But Jesus seeks to reassure them. He continues on saying, has anyone by fussing in front of a mirror ever gotten taller by so much of an, as an inch? This is the message version. All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. You know, if God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. Well, the line in there that really gets me is when he says, people who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. And the words that get me out of that sentence are fuss over. Do you ever fuss over things? Do you ever obsess on them? Do you ever worry about them? Do you ever feel preoccupied by stuff in your life? I mean, material things, yes. You know, my neighbor just remodeled their house. It's time for us to get a new kitchen, right? One of my friends just upgraded their RV. Maybe I should upgrade RV. I mean, all the time we're trying to keep up with what we see others doing. But it's also, uh, it's also with our kids. I mean, uh, sports is a great example. You know, let's get our kids into, oh, there's a, there's a couple families that put their kids in club baseball or club soccer or club whatever. Like, we better do it too. We got to keep up. Uh, we do it. I do it in my career. We see other people's prospects soar. Um, you know, this last, just this weekend, I was, you know, at this pastor conference, and there's people getting appointed to task force and special commissions and all sorts of stuff, and, you know, you sit there, and you're like, man, what am I, chop liver? How do I, how do I get noticed? How does someone pick me to put on their commission? I want that. I fuss over it. You know, one reason that we're so busy, this is just my opinion, but I think that we're caught up in chasing after the things that don't really matter. We fuss over them because we're afraid of missing out or we're just trying to keep up. When everyone else is chasing after all the gold and all the glory, I guess 
I guess I should do it too, right? And Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, there's an important tension here in this passage, and it's this. Notice that Jesus didn't say, you know, seek first the kingdom of God because you don't need any of this stuff. He didn't say that. He also did not say, you know, seek God's kingdom first and all your wildest materialistic dreams will be, you know, jackpot. He didn't say that either. There's a tension here that we have to keep in mind, a framework. You know, making a priority of God's kingdom puts everything else in perspective. It puts it in its place. Jesus isn't trying to minimize our needs or other aspects of life, nor is he trying to kind of play into our selfish, greedy tendencies. He's addressing the motivation, often unhealthy motivation in us, as we're driven to succeed or we're driven to enjoy the finer things in life, just like everybody else, or we're driven to get noticed. Those are the things that make us stressed. Those are the things that we fuss over and and obsess about and feel preoccupied with. Those are the things that cause anxiety. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provision. Seek God's kingdom first. One of the things that C.S. Lewis said is that when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. They're not suppressed, but increased. The kingdom of God isn't just another item on your to-do list or the first item on your to-do list. It's like a framework that puts all the other things and all the other priorities and all the other stuff that we're doing in life in perspective. It puts it in God's perspective. And um, an example from my own life, so, you know, pursuing the kingdom of God is, um, it's like aligning your life with God or with God's life or what he would want to have in our life. And how I would say this applies in my own is over the last few months, like, you know, all the way back to Thanksgiving, I've started to do this, even though I wouldn't have used these words until this week, I've started to do this in my own life, like seek God's kingdom first. And I know that I'm a pastor, and of course, we always seek God's kingdom first. Now, we're also human. Um, but, you know, last fall, there's was, there was a lot of reflection I was doing in my own life. And the pandemic, you know, I, I felt like I was a mess. That was not the best version of myself. Uh, I know all of us could say, yeah, 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 me too. Um, I was doing the best I could, but there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of depression. There was a lot of bad coping habits. There was a lot of, you know, I stopped exercising. I stopped doing things that I enjoy. I, I, I would have said I'm stuck in survival mode. I'm just trying to make it through this time, and then we'll get to the other side, and we'll sort this stuff out. But truly, there was a spiritual aspect to the pandemic that wasn't healthy for me. And I wasn't seeking God's kingdom first. 
I was probably seeking my kingdom. That's what survival mode means. Like, oh, I'm just going to focus on, I'm gonna, I am going to try and get through this. I was focusing on me. And whenever you do that, things start to kind of spiral out of control. So over the last few months, I've made an intentional effort to put God's kingdom first in my life. It started by, I joined a group, the Zoom that I was telling you about, that's my group. We check in once a week and we talk about our life and we pray for one another and uh, our relationship with God. And uh, Sometimes I do a lot of talking, sometimes I do a lot of listening. It's a good group, I needed that group, I need that group. Um, out of that, I've reestablished some life-giving rhythms, um, some devotional practices. I listen to Pray As You Go. Talk about that a lot. But another one that I started doing again was just journaling, which is like praying with a pen. I, I do it a couple times a week. It's really good for me. But I also rec- uh, exercise regularly. Uh, I try and eat better. I mean, just basic stuff that I'd lost during the pandemic. Um, I make an effort to serve others. And I guess we all could say that, but for whatever reason, I need to do this. And even though I'm talking about it, I try and do it so other people don't notice because I know I'm doing it for them, whatever it is. I took some letters to the mailbox. I cleaned the dishes. I, you know, gave a friend a call. I, I have to serve others. Uh, Another thing that I've started to do is I make an effort to be present with my family when, when they're available, instead of being preoccupied, thinking about something else. And all of this didn't start at once. It's kind of been an evolution. But the other day, someone did something really, really, really nice for a member of our family, like, like stupid generosity. And I was, I was debating whether or not, like, should I actually receive this or should I just, you know, say this is too much? And I was um, debating this out loud with another friend, and it occurred to me that in the last few weeks, there's probably been three of these occurrences uh, on diff- for different members of my family or for me in different parts of my life. And because I was doing this message and thinking about this, I was like, oh, is this the added unto you piece? Maybe. It's not why I'm doing it, but when you seek God's kingdom first, in fact, I would say I like seeking God's kingdom first because I notice the difference it makes in me. I still get angry, but it doesn't linger like a rain cloud. You know, I still get frustrated at times, but I'm able to let it go. Uh, I'm way less defensive than I was six, nine months ago, even though sometimes it still takes me a second to react. I'm way more calm, way more content with just the way things are at in my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep seeking God's kingdom first. But then there's this other aspect of the stuff that we used to worry about and used to consume so much of our mental energy and time. That's the stuff God's saying, like, I got this. I'm going to take care of it, even when you're not looking for it. There's going to be things and people and opportunities that come into your life that I bring. Stop worrying so much about it. That's the invitation. Seek first God's kingdom. 
And, um, you know, when we're willing to kind of try and understand what Jesus is talking here, try to embrace what Jesus is inviting us to embrace, it has power to reorder all of our lives with unity, with purpose. This is the life Jesus talks about. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There is something qualitatively different about following Jesus than just jumping into the stream with the rest of our world and chasing after all the stuff that we're surrounded with. I mean, it's hard not to just jump in that stream and float along. But Jesus is saying there's something better over here if you want to come and get it. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we're, we're just going to keep kind of flushing this out. And I'm worried about it because we want to define it and categorize it and put a bow around the kingdom of God. But Jesus never even did that because he wants to capture our heart, our imagination, our passion, our dreams, our desire. I mean, the reason that we want to get involved in the kingdom of God is because, yes, this world is broken and we can do better. And through God and his power, we can be involved with what he's doing here on this earth. And that is way more exciting, uh, way more fun than all the stuff that we usually spend our time doing. So we're going to, I mean, as a church, yes, we want to be all in on God's kingdom. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning and we just uh, humbly admit our own faults and failures. And um, I mean, and for some of us, this is, this is brand new and we've never heard it before. And so we're trying to wrap our brains around it. Uh, more importantly, we want to wrap our actions around it. Um, but then there's those of us who've, who kind of have known this, been there, done that, and we've just forgotten. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to seek your kingdom first. Help us to lean into what, who you are and what you want for our lives and what you want us to be. Help us to put you first. And Lord, we know that all these things will be added. That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because this is the best way to live. This is your way to live. Help us to do that. We pray this in your name.